As we come to open God's word, we continue in the Gospel of John, and we continue now in John 17. John 17 has been called um, the Lord's Prayer, the Lord's, the true Lord's Prayer, because uh, the Lord's Prayer that we th- see in the Sermon on the Mount, as we mentioned before, it is the Lord's Prayer because it came from the Lord. Uh, but it's the Lord; it's a prayer the Lord cannot pray because. Uh, he has no need to confess sin or ask for forgiveness. But it was a model for us. It's an outline for us of how we can pray, and it comes from the Lord, and that makes it precious to us. He taught us that. This prayer is also called the Lord's Prayer because it is the prayer the Lord prayed, not just the Lord, prayer the Lord gave. But it's also often called the Lord's high priestly prayer. It reminds us of the high priest in Israel's worship in the temple. There was only one high priest. His famous for his primary role was our most important role was on the Day of Atonement, when he would bring in the offering and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat there in the Holy of Holies. But when the high priest was doing his ministry, he wore a, a breastplate a, 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 that had twelve stones, 12 gems on it. On each one was a name of one of the tribes of Israel. He wore on his shoulders uh, also engraved names of, 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 of the tribes of Israel. And so as high priest, when he went into the temple, when he went into the Holy of Holies, he was bearing a remembrance and representing the nation of Israel. Well, in John 17, as our Lord prays for us, he's like that high priest bringing us before the Father. And we'll talk more about the outline in just a moment. But today I'd like us to look at the passage before us. Uh, We are working our way a little bit slowly through John 17. We could go much slower. We could take one verse at a time and be racing. So, but we're getting kind of a, an overview of this wonderful chapter. Last time we looked at verses 1 to 5. Today, uh, we're con- considering verses 6 through 10. So I encourage you to, to look at your Bible and, and follow along as I read. John chapter 17, verses 6 through 10. Our Lord speaking says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I come forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. In the first five verses, our Lord speaks of himself. He prays, if you will, for himself. But really, he's praying for his glory to glorify the Father. But he's praying with the idea that God would, this is the hour in which he'll be glorified on the cross and following that restored to 
the fullness of the expression of his glory as he returns to heaven. Restored. It's not a new glory. He is God. And so while he was on earth, he was veiling that glory. In heaven, he'll be restored to it. And so that's a prayer in the first five verses. He prays with regard to himself and his father and, and, and the glory that they, if you will, share. In verses 6 to 19, he specifically prays for his disciples. You know, he mentioned, he prayed for the men you've given to me. He prays, I might say more specifically, for his, for his 11 disciples. Judas has already departed. Uh, and Judas is no longer considered one of the disciples or apostles. But he's praying for those specific men. You see that in verse 12, for example, of chapter 17. When I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So as he's praying, he's saying, uh, verses uh, 6 to 19, he's praying for the disciples. But even as he's praying for them, much of what he says applies to us as well. But specifically, in verses 20 to 26, he will turn and pray for you and for me. Uh, we, we can see that uh, <coughs> later on when he'll pray, that you know, he'll pray for those who come to faith through them. Verse 20, uh, uh, again, we're not there yet, but in verse 20 we'll read, I do not pray for these alone. Verses 6 to 19, he's been focusing on the disciples. I do not pray for these alone, but also for the, those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. Their word is this word. And so as we come to faith through Christ, as we come through faith through the ministry of the word, uh, we are believers. And our Lord will pray for us in verses 20 uh, to 26. But for now... We're looking at the Lord's praying for his disciples. But again, we'll see that, that much of that applies to us as well. Um, so we might say, uh, A.W. Pink says this as he looks at these passages. It is to be noted that the Lord did not begin by asking for the blessing of the disciples. Rather, did he first describe the ones he was about to pray for in John 17, 6 through 10, and it's in presentation in 17, 11, and 12, and it's supplication. So, so in these verses, he's talking about who am I praying for? Who are they and what is their situation? So let's look at verses 6 to 10. He says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you've given to me out of the world. They were yours. You've given them to me. And they have kept your word. So he's no longer now praying about his own glory. And again, that's not a boastful thing, but as he's glorified, the Father's glorified. And so he's no longer praying in that way, but he's, tur he's turning and praying to the disciples. And notice what he says about them. First, he says that he has manifested the Father's name to them. He's manifested the Father's name to them. What does that mean? The word manifest has the idea of to make visible. I'm not sure, did he, did he write it down for them to see a name? No. Uh, to make manifest or clear, uh, to be known, uh, to be obvious, if you will. He has, 
He has made them know, see, if you will, God's name. Now again, that's not speaking of, uh, you know, the Bible speaks of many names of God. He's called Elohim uh, in the Old Testament, which means basically God. He's called Yahweh. That's the name uh, that he described to Moses. Um, he's called, you know, Yahweh Yireh, the one who provides, and so many other names. El Shaddai, you can think of many names. El Elyon. Names in the Old Testament that describe God, but here he's not talking really about a specific title, but rather the word name in biblical thinking so often means the wholeness of who you are. It's described, your name is your character. Your name is your person. And so what he's saying is, God, I have revealed who you are. I have made it manifest. And I think when he says, I've made it manifest, that's helpful. Because he, didn't, he wasn't just teaching them the truth of who God is. He was showing them who God is and what he's like. And so through his teaching over those years as he would explain uh, God's word to them and teach them. Like, for example, the Sermon on the Mount, what he laid out. You've heard it and said this, let me explain to you God's truth. So there was teaching, but they also saw God as they saw Jesus. They saw his character, and they saw his power. And so he, he made manifest God as who, he, as who he is. And so that's vital, because as he showed them, if you will, the name of God, as he showed them God as who he is, his character and his being, that's central to salvation. He said back in verse 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. And so what he's saying is, as I have revealed you to them, that's eternal life. They can have that relationship with you. And he goes on and says, I've manifested your name to the men whom you've given me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me. So they have a couple of things more to say about this. They, he, he, he showed them who God is. And he says the, that Father gave them, gave the disciples to Jesus out of the world. The fact when he says he gave them out of the world, the world, when you read it in the New Testament, especially in John, that's referring to uh, the world world has the basic idea of organization, but it's that that grouping, that system, that people that are opposed to God. The disciples began as opponents to God. They were in the world. They were part of the system that resisted God, that rejected God, that was going their own way. But he says, I gave you those disciples out of the world. And that's an important statement, again, as we noticed last time. The Father gave the disciples out of the world to Jesus. Now, they weren't already living for God, but the, the Father brought them out of the world and gave them to the Son. The Father led them to saving faith. This is, again, the doctrine of election. God chose them and gave them to the Son. If you will, if, if I am going to give you something... It has to be mine. Okay, I might have to go to the store and get it, 
But if I present to you a gift that doesn't belong to me, I think you could call that fraud. Remember when, when David wanted to offer a sacrifice and, and, and he was offered, so well, here, just, we'll, we'll give it to you. He said, no, no, I don't give to, to God what has cost me nothing. It has to be mine. I have to make it mine so I can give it to God. God made the disciples his so he could give them to the son. And that's the concept of election. They were in the world and he called them out of the world. He brought them to faith. He chose them as his own. And ultimately, what led, so what led them to that saving faith was God giving them to the son. Jesus, again, in John chapter 10 said, my sheep hear my voice. In John chapter 6, Jesus said this, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. So there is described, Jesus describes what happens. God the Father draws us to himself. It's, it's his divine act. Paul describes in first, first, Second Corinthians, excuse me, how uh, it's just like when God created the earth and he spoke light into darkness. There was no light. He made light. In the same way our heart is in darkness, God in his gracious will speaks light into our heart so that we see him and we know him. And so God is saying he gave us, he took us, his disciples, and it's true of us. He took us out of the world, made us his own, and gave us to the Son. That's like, you know, some of you on, on Valentine's Day, that's a, that's a little hinty, it's coming up closely. You know, you go to Walmart and you see if there's any of that Halloween candy left over. And, you, and you, you, you make it your own by buying it. You change the wrapping paper, you look for something pink, and you give it um, with fear and trepidation if you actually try something like that. But the point is, it has to first become yours. And so you choose it and then give, make it yours and give it. That's what Jesus, that's what God the, Jesus is saying God the Father did. He made us his and then he gave us to the Son. We'll talk a little bit. Why is Jesus emphasizing this? Well, in one sense, what he's, he's emphasizing is, why should I pray for them? Why should you hear? And what he's saying is we both have a very personal interest in these men and, and in all of us. Um, H.A. Ironside, I've, I've mentioned him before, a Bible expositor from uh, early part of the 1900s. He said this, I heard Sam Hadley say once, and, I, and I'm supposed, Sam Hadley's supposed to mean something to us. I've never heard of Sam Hadley. But he said, I heard Sam Hadley once since, in a great, once, I heard him say once in a great meeting in Oakland, California, after listening to a number of testimonies, many of you have been telling how you found Jesus. I have no such story to tell. I never found him. For I was not looking for him, but he found me. And drew me to himself from a life of sin and shame. And he quoted the lines of the old hymn, 
Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He, to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. You have heard the story of the little boy who was asked by a Christian worker if he had found Jesus. I don't think you've heard this, but I'll go ahead and tell it to you. Looking up in wonder, he said, please, sir, I did not know that he was lost. But I was lost, and he found me. And so may every redeemed one say. So Ironside's kind of making the point here. Um, remember for back in the 70s, there was that bumper sticker, I found it. And it really meant, you know, it was talking about the gospel and all that. Really, it should have said, he found me. And, and so that's what Jesus is saying. Who are these men? They're the ones that you chose for yourself and you gave them to me. And so I'm talking to you about them. And, he, and he, so he says, I, I've, you gave them to me. I manifested your word to them or your name. And he says, and they have kept your word. That's describing that they've trusted in Christ. It's a work of God's grace. And the evidence of that, the evidence of God's grace in their hearts is they kept God's word. And what does that mean to keep? Um, sometimes the word to keep, like you keep a command, that means obedience. It was really driven home again when, to me when I was in Israel and getting to know my, so many Jewish people. And, and, and those who were observant Jews, they would often say, I'm a Shomer, I'm a shomer Shabbat. I'm a keeper of the Sabbath. In other words, they obey the Sabbath, if you will. He's not hearing, really as emphasizing they kept the word. This is a word that means um, to, to observe closely, to treasure, to watch over, to guard, preserve. In other words, they embraced God's word. They held on to God's word and regarded it as precious. They claimed it as their own. So in saving faith, when we come to Christ, we're claiming him as our Savior. And part of that is we embrace his word, his teaching, his revelation. So the Lord is praying for those who've trusted in him and who came to a genuine, uh, persevering faith by the grace of God. They trusted in Christ as a fruit of God's work in them, choosing them, giving them to the Son, and they have kept They've kept God's word because they are kept by the Father. And so he's describing what, what he's saying here is true of every believer, especially true of the disciples, in that they had a, a much more direct manifestation of the name of God as they saw Jesus. And again, a good example of the name of God really telling us about character and identity. Remember, we it was said in Isaiah that the virgin would bear a child and they, call it, and they would call his name Emmanuel. Look through the Gospels. How often did someone call Jesus Emmanuel? But it's a name that indicates who he is. God with us. It's, it's a, it, it, it identifies who he is and his character. And so Jesus says, I have shown you, God, Father. I've shown you to the eyes of faith. And they have taken that message and they've embraced it eternally. They've kept the word. 
A couple of things we can glean just from this passage. It's true of us. Again, this is speaking, specifically speaking of the 11 disciples. But he says, it's true of us. We too are the Father's gift to the Son. And that's, again, I, I mentioned this before, but that speaks of our security. And Jesus talks about that in John chapter 10. You know, the Father holds us and the Son holds us. We are kept. We are God's gift to the Son. And when he gives a gift, it doesn't sneak out the back door. We're secure. God only gives reliable gifts. We're the possession, the ongoing possession of the Father and Son, and we're precious to both. What an incredible truth. The Father holds us as precious. The Son holds us as precious. Our faith is in Christ was God's gift to Christ and to us. We are God's gift to Christ. God is the one who moved our heart to trust in him. And notice again, saving faith is a continuing faith. They have kept. that Again, a little grammar here. I know it's, for some of you, might be a long time since you had a hard time figuring out the difference between a verb and a noun. But this is a, 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 in the perfect tense. That means they you know, have kept, not they kept. They kept, that means they, they did keep and now they quit. Have kept means, that's past action, continuing results. And, and so he says they have kept the word. They embraced it and they're holding on to it. So saving faith is a continuing faith. Or, as it's been said, a faith that fizzles before the finish had a fatal flaw from the first. A true faith is a keeping faith. There are, and, and Jesus, remember, he tells the story of the, the different responses of the seed and the different soils. And some will make an appearance of faith. But a true faith is a keeping faith. But as I hear all those things about God's gift to the Son, I kind of made fun of how you might give a less than adequate stale candy gift from the previous Halloween. Or maybe you, you bought it last Valentine's Day and never gave it. And you pull it out of the closet and dust off the packaging. Now, you know, I'm, I'm kind of making fun. That's some gift, guy. Um, honestly, that's a much better gift, it seems to me, than I am to the Son. It's almost like you want to, the son could receive me from the father and say, is this the best you could do? How, how, how astonishing that God the father would consider me to be a gift and the son would want to receive me as a gift. You may have heard of the um, Chinese evangelist and teacher from years ago, Watchman Nee, Watchman Nee. He told about a new convert who came in deep distress to him. He said, no matter how much I pray, no matter how hard I try, I simply cannot seem to be faithful to my Lord. I think I'm losing my salvation. You know, he, again, looking in the mirror and say, boy, this is some gift. Here's what Watchman Nee said. Do you see this dog here? He is my dog. He is house trained. 
He never makes a mess. He is obedient. I wonder where he got it. Um, he is pu- a pure delight to me. Out in the kitchen, I have a son, a baby son. He makes a mess. He throws his food around. He fouls his clothes. He's a total mess. But who's going to inherit my kingdom? Not my dog. My son is my heir. You are Jesus Christ's heir because it is for you that he died. We are Christ's heirs not through our perfection, but because of his grace. And what that does is it humbles us. And that's where understanding these truths uh, is the opposite of arrogance. Oh, I believe this. and I, No. If we truly understand that it's all of God, who gets the glory? And that's what Jesus is saying. Father, the glory is yours. The glory is mine. We have taken these out of the world. They still smell of the world. And we're fitting them for heaven. And there's that amazing phrase I I still can't quite grasp. Co-heirs with Jesus Christ. Or even more simply, son of God. That's grace. And so Jesus says he's going to pray for us. He he begins by saying who we are and and why God should listen. We hear more and more about court cases and things back and forth. And sometimes you'll hear uh, someone will try and bring a court case and the court will say, you have no no grounds. You have no no standing in this case. You can't bring anything in because this, 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 this doesn't relate to you. You're you're not relevant to the case. Well, Jesus is beginning his prayer for us by showing our standing. It relates to us because we were the the fathers and, and he gave us to the son. And now Jesus says, I want to talk to you about our precious possessions. In verses seven and eight, he goes on to, to, um, talk about the fact that God's word was given to the disciples verse 7 now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you for I have given to them the words which you have given me and they've received them and have known surely that I came forth from you and they have believed that you sent me so so now he's describing their faith first he describes God's work and that's always the order God works and brings about our, our trust and, and, and relationship with the Lord. Again, you notice even these verses, some perfect tenses. They have kept, have known. They, 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 they received and, and are keeping. They came to know and continue to know God's truth. Their faith is a settled fact that continues. Yes, there are bumps in the road. Yes, there are times when our faith can be, what would Jesus tell his disciples? Little faith. As he's describing them, they've, they've kept, they've known, they've kept your word, they've known these things. Who's he talking about? Primarily the 11 disciples. How are they going to get, what's going to happen before this evening is through? They're going to they're fall in the ditch. 
But it's still true of them that they have kept the word, that they have known who he is. So here we see a, a genuine element of saving faith. It recognizes that what Jesus taught and did was because he came from heaven and he spoke for God. There's no doubt about the deity of Christ or the truthfulness of his message. Saving faith is a recognition of a lot about who Jesus is. It's not enough to say he's a, a, a man with good moral teaching. Uh, you know, you, you hear about uh, liberalism within Christianity. And I'm so reminded of uh, Gresham Machen wrote a book, Christianity and Liberalism. In other words, saying they're different things. Liberalism theologically denies that the Bible is God's word. It, they say it's, it's man's ideas. And man's ideas can be full of nonsense and man's ideas can be mistaken. But so the liberal denies that this is a divinely inspired book. And the liberal will deny often, usually, that Jesus is God in the flesh. And they'll deny the miracles like the virgin birth and more. That's what liberalism teaches. It's not Christianity. And, and here's the point. Saving faith. And so someone who, 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 who claims those things, Jesus is saying that they're, they're not a believer. Because a believer recognizes and embraces the fact that Jesus is God. He came from heaven. And again and again, Jesus describing himself. I came into the world. That's not language that describes you and me. We started in this world. We're going to his world. But we start here. He had no start. And he came from heaven into this world. He is God. Now do we fully comprehend how, what it means to be God and man? No. Uh, but, but we believe what the Bible says. He is God. And not only that, his message is from God. It's not some man-made uh, myths. And this is so different from, uh, for example, the, the rabbis. Often the, you know, they will refer to Jesus as teacher or they would call it rabbi. That's what you would call um, a teacher back then. Uh, it's interesting to me, the word rabbi means literally my great one. And that's a great label for Jesus. Uh, but not many others. But they called him rabbi, but it was so different from the rabbis that were all around them. Because if you read through Jewish literature, especially at the time, so often you'll read about an idea and they'll say, well, rabbi this said, this said this, rabbi this said that, this rabbi said this, and this is the approved opinion. And you might say, well, how, how do they know the approved opinion? Well, the majority hold this view. Truth is not a majority opinion. Truth is truth. And Jesus wasn't one who was offering up his opinions that might or might be not be accurate. He was revealing God's inerrant truth. Period. Full stop. And so he, when Jesus describes the ones for whom he's praying, when he's describing what it means to be a, a believer and a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, he says this. They have known that all things which you have given me are from you. It's divinely inspired truth. 
not speculation and ideas. And and again, for I've given to them the words which you've given me, and they've received them, and have known surely that I came from you. So So a true believer recognizes God's word is God's truth. And a true believer recognizes that Jesus is God come from heaven, become a man. So if someone denies the deity of Christ, they are outside Christianity. And sometimes we'll refer to such people as, as cults or, or other things, aberrant religions. But you know, two that immediately can come to mind are uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. They deny these essential truths. Liberalism denies these essential truths. And so he goes further and says, um, the disciples realized and embraced these truths. Many liked what Jesus was saying and really liked his miracles. Remember, especially after the, the feeding of the the crowd, the 5,000, they wanted to force him to be king, which instantly isn't that an odd, he's not much of a king if you force him to be king. But they, they, they liked what he did for them. And many people will go through things and say, if things are going well, God's good because he's taking care of me. Oh, wait a minute, now I'm having problems. I don't like God anymore. There was a scene in John chapter 6. Um, Jesus said... I, therefore, I said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him to, my, to him by my Father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. So there were people up to that point who were following him around, listening to his teaching. I suppose if we were doing a more updated translation, we might have called them groupies, though I think that's probably an old term. But in other words, they, they followed around because they liked what they were hearing. But after a while, they didn't like what they were hearing, and they left. Then Jesus said to the twelve, do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's John chapter 6, verses 65 to 69. So you see, they understood who Jesus is and what his word is. What about when Jesus challenged Mary? I mean, Martha, you know, there by the side of the tomb of Lazarus. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection of the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she says, I believe you're the Messiah. Remember when Jesus asked the disciples what they believed. Matthew chapter 16, verses 15 to 17. Matthew 16, 15 to 17. Jesus said to them, who do you, who do you say that I am? Remember he asked first, who do people say that I am? And they had all kinds of ideas. You're, you're Elijah, you're Moses, you're, you're John the Baptist, come back to life. Well, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered him and said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. What's he saying? You have a genuine faith, but it didn't come from you. 
God the Father flipped the switch. That's new language. He, he, he flipped the light switch and you saw who I am. Now, follow through. How does, how does Peter do? He stumbles. But he was a, but there Jesus is saying, you have a genuine faith. And it's genuine because it's not from you, it's from the Father. And so what does that say about each and every one of us? When we trust in Jesus Christ as Savior, it's by God's grace. Saving faith um, is, is, a, is, is beyond the capacity of our flesh. We're dead spiritually, but God gives us light. And so he gets the glory. It's not that we were smarter, but he was gracious to us. Saving faith, and as I said, not only believes, but recognizes that Jesus is God come in the flesh. 1 John, so the epistle, 1 John, same author, human author, John. 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. It says, by this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified, testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. So that's what saving faith looks like. How do I know that I'm a believer? Well, I, one of the, John gives three different tests, the doctrinal test, the moral test, and the social test we've talked about in the past. I'll, I'll summarize, doctrinal test, a right view of who Jesus is in God's word. The moral test means I'm, obey, I'm obedient or growing in obedience. And the social test is I love the brethren. Well, here he's saying, if you're born again, you believe that Jesus came from God to be savior of the world. So genuine Christian faith is not simply a morality or kindness. You know, a lot of people say, well, what is, uh, you know, to be a Christian means you're a nice, a gentle, a kind person. Those are the fruits of faith. Genuine faith knows who Jesus is. He is God come in the flesh. Why he came, he came to die for our sin and, and trust in him for forgiveness and life. Through, through that we know God, and he says that's what eternal life is. It is a relationship with the eternal God. And it's accomplished by God, and that's why we know it will, if the genuine faith is a keeping faith. Because it's not up to me. It's not up to me. Well, then the Lord goes on to pray for them. In verses 9 and 10. He says, I pray for them in verse 9. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. He prays for believers given to him by the Father. Or you could say he prays for the elect. He does not pray for the world, the lost rebels. He's not asking God to bless the lost rebels in their rebellion. Now this doesn't mean that we shouldn't pray for the lost world. But this is how the Lord is praying for his disciples. Paul prayed for the lost. Brethren, my heart's desire, Romans 10.1, and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. What is the greatest need of the lost person? It's Christ. And, and so we pray that they'll come to know Christ. And particularly he had a passion for his fellow Jewish people, that they might come to know Christ. Paul also told us to pray for all men. 1 Timothy 2.1 and 2. I therefore exhort you, 
First of all, that, all, that, all, that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and giving the thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in godliness and reverence. So that's, we, he tells us to pray for those who are in authority. Pray for all types of men. Not just believers, but, but, the, but there's a different kind of prayer for the lost. We pray, first of all, for their salvation. And we also pray for rulers that, as a result of their authority, that we might have a peaceable life in godliness and reverence. How in different countries of the world there are people praying that God would move in the hearts of their leaders to take the, the burden off of them that oppresses them, that they might have the freedom to publicly worship Christ, to freely and fearlessly teach their children of Christ. I, I think about that. I mentioned, for example, in China, it's, it's illegal to teach anyone under 18 about Jesus Christ. Sunday school, vacation, Bible school, parents at the table teaching them about Jesus Christ is a crime for which you could lose your child and some have. And yet they do. Come across the waves to America where we are free for now to teach our children of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and how many don't seize that opportunity. There are our brothers and sisters in different parts of the world in prison right now for the crime of teaching the gospel to their own children. And yet they took the risk because they hungered that their child might know Christ. We have the freedom. And so often... It sits on the back burner as a convenience. Isn't that true that so often, also many of our freedoms we take for granted until they're gone? Well, Jesus told us to pray, or that he prayed, and Paul told us to pray for all that we might have peace, among other things. But Jesus goes on, I'm not praying for the world, I'm praying for my disciples, but for those, I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom, again, whom you have given me, for they are yours. So he keeps bringing it back to, these are our people, Father. They are yours and you gave them to me, we share them. So that's why I'm praying for them. They're yours, Father. This kind of reminds me of the parent that has frustration in their child and they go to the other parent and say, look what your child has done. Unless the child comes home with some kind of a trophy, look what my child has done. Um, but he's saying, Father, they're your children. They're my children. That's why we're praying for them. So he's praying for his people. Again, those chosen by the Father and given to the Son. And so in praying for them, it's reflecting, again, our security. They, they share their care for us. John Blanchard had said, the Christian's eternal security is rooted not in what he has done, but in where he has been placed. We've been planted in the sun, S-O-N. And so we're, we're kept and secure. 
In verse 10, Jesus goes on to say, And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I, and I am glorified in them. So he's saying, we have a shared interest, and they glorify me, and as I'm glorified, I glorify you. So Father, out of our love for them, out of our care for them, out of our commitment to them, and for the sake of our glory, I'm praying. And then, as I said, next week we'll say, what does he pray? But we see here, the issue is that God might be glorified in us. But, and he's praying on the basis, the son is praying on the basis of the unity he has with the father. The elect of the father are the elect of the son. And the elect glorify the son and the father. It's all of God. How do we glorify God? Again, we might remember back, remember the catechism? What, 40 years ago we started in question number one. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Our, our, we exist for the glory of God. How do we do that? First of all, by believing his message. We dishonor God when we reject his, his, his truth. That's dishonoring God. We glorify God by being cleansed and justified by his work. We need, we, need, we need cleansing. We need life. And so when we trust in him by his work, we are cleansed. We glorify God when we are made right with God through the work of Christ. We glorify God by being witnesses to his glorious gospel. So when we live and speak to others of our faith, we're glorifying God. There's some thoughts from this section. Jesus is praying to the Father for the, his disciples and for us. Like I said, you can see, you can see it goes beyond. Because we belong to them. The Father chose us for his own people and he gave us to his Son. We are precious. And it's not because we can't say... We were better, we were prettier, we were smarter, we were holier. We weren't. But he's chosen to show his glory in the inglorious, you and me. And so this gives us, by the way, assurance in our own prayer lives. Why should God hear our prayers? You know, some people say, well, I'm nothing. I'm not worthy of God. I can't pray. Well, yeah, you can. We're his people. His children. Why does a ch parent respond to a needy child? Because it's his child. And that's a bond like no other. Well, except for the higher bond of grandparenting, but that's another chapter. But, but the point is, uh, why, did, why do you focus? If you're in the grocery store and the child walks up and says, we well, give you 20 bucks. Just get out of here. <laughs> if you'll even respond to it. Your child walks up. Hey, I want to buy the new Xbox. Would you hand me your credit card? Oh, sure. Buy two in case you lose one. Well, I wouldn't say that. But, but no, it's you hear, and what do you do? You give them what is good for them, don't you? So you filter it through uh, what is good for you. And so your child comes up and says, you know, we're, we, there's a Christian bookstore next door, and you know, I've been asking you to give me a Bible. Would you give me a Bible? 
grab, come, let's go. <laughs> Choose one. Which one do you look like you would want to read it? Let's, let's, let's find a Bible for you. So, but so why would, would God hear our prayer? Not because we're so lovely, but because we're his. He, we're his child. It's his responsibility to hear. Just like a shepherd. It's a shepherd's job to protect, to guide, to provide for us. And he's our shepherd. He's the good shepherd. Again, I, I, I want to underscore, as I'm reading through all of this, and how sure we are in our relationship to the Lord, Jesus' disciples were quite imperfect. As Jesus is saying, these, you gave them to me. They're mine. They're ours for our glory. In, in virtually a matter of minutes, they're going to scatter into the dark as Jesus is arrested. And as Jesus goes to the cross, one man of his disciples will be there, John. The rest will be at a distance. But John with some women will gather at the foot of the cross. They'll be filled with fear and doubt. And yet, do you see how he prays? When we disappoint, when we stumble and fail, what did he say to Peter? You're, going to, you're about to be sifted by Satan, but I'm praying for you. In our failings, we're still his. We're still his. We don't have to be perfect. We don't have to have a full understanding of God and his ways to have his love and his care. He loved us in eternity past. He set his love on us while we were yet sinners, is how Romans 5 talks about it. And God the Father gave us as a gift to the Son. We're loved in the beloved, Ephesians 1, 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. We're Jesus' people. And so when G we come before the Father, the Father sees Jesus and delights to see us, to hear us, to welcome us because we're with Jesus. I have to tell you a story one time. Barb and I went to, with the family went to Bob Jones University. They were doing our home, they did our homeschool curriculum. And so we sent forward a, a message and said, we'd like to come by and visit the homeschool capacity and would, could we do that? And they said, sure, come on. So we went and um, the, we got to there and just I thought we'd get some kind of pass or something to go over to the homeschool department. And they said, oh, well, well Dr. Bob, who is Dr. Bob Jones the third, you know, the university has his name on it, so that kind of tells you something. And we, we were invited into his office. We sat and shared wonderful communion in the Lord for about 45 minutes. And then he called in someone and said, you know, you know, show them around. And it was really fun because every place we went, to the dining commons and all these other things, as we came to the door, you know, and there's these, you know, time where students have to show all their IDs and pay for things. The, the, our little guide would just say, they're guests of Dr. Bob. Boom, the doors are open and people start showing us the way. We went over to the homeschool department and we walked in and they all said, who are you people? <laughs> so what do you mean? We got this word that some guests of Dr. Bob are coming and so... <laughs> We're supposed to show you anything and everything. And, and all because, well, I'm, I'm with him. And if you're not sure who that is, read, read the name on the school out there. Um, 
it was kind of a picture of why should I let you in here? I'm with Jesus. I'm in Jesus. That's full access. I can walk into the Holy of Holies, pull that veil back, and just walk right into the very presence of God because I'm in Jesus. That's liberating. God chose us and gave us to his son. Thomas Watson made this remark. God never repents of his electing love. God doesn't change his mind about us. I think we could all say, I've given him reason to. But he's made us his own. He's gifted us to the Son. And it's on that basis that the Son will bring us before the Father in prayer. But we'll get to that next week. Father, we are so grateful for our Lord Jesus Christ. We're so grateful for your, your gracious love toward us. We confess we, there is nothing in us worthy of your saving, deserving of your saving, or even worthy of your keeping. But we declare that, Father, it's for your glory. And as humbled as we are to think that we might be a vessel of your glory, Father, glorify yourselves, in your, your, you and the Son and the Holy Spirit in our lives. May we be vessels, spectacles, instruments of your glory. And Father, I do pray, if any here are yet to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, may you in your kindness open their eyes, turn on the light, that they might see the glory of Christ and the depth of their need for him. May they come to saving faith. And Father, we thank you for your love that chose us, your love that keeps us. In Jesus' name.